Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. WDEV Radio in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic where we take you behind the headlines to explain how Vermont and the nation really work. And to do that, we talk with guests in Vermont and around the country of all kinds with different points of view. Our goal is exploration and insight. It's Friday, the 17th, sixth week of the, maybe the seventh actually, of the legislative session in Montpelier. Today, we're doing a week in review, exploring what happened in Montpelier this week because a lot did we take your calls at 244-1777 and your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Here's the schedule. Uh, we're going to do some headlines with me. Then we're going to go behind the scenes at the Vermont General Assembly and talk about what happened this week with Lola Dufort, the State House reporter at VT Digger. She is uh, on a tight schedule running around the State House, but she is going to call in. We'll speak with D.C. correspondent Bob Nay about Chinese balloons and Lord knows what else, train derailments. Uh, and Seven Days reporter Allison Novak is going to join us in the 10-15 slot to talk about the Northfield police chief. Uh, I like this story because it uh, it forces us to discuss all of the issues around law enforcement uh, uh politics, First Amendment rights, uh, what a police officer can say on his private time versus on his public time. Um, it gets complicated and uh, it's tailor-made for this show. So uh, we're going to talk to Allison Novak about that. Uh, but first, some headlines. There is a new commissioner of the Vermont Department of Children and Families. His name is Chris Winters. He is the former Deputy Secretary of State. Uh, he's a good guy, smart, hardworking, and he has popped up as the new commissioner of uh, the Department of Children and Families. For my money, and I know I've said this before to other guests, uh, that could be the hardest job in state government. Uh, maybe his boss, the Secretary of Human Services or the, or the uh, Corrections Commissioner, uh, with apologies to the governor for how hard his job is, um, I got to think that the Department of Children and Families, you know, where you're dealing with foster care and the, the toughest, toughest job uh, taking care of kids who are in trouble uh, and families that are in trouble in this state. Chris Winters, the new commissioner, uh, will make sure to have him on the show. Uh, that invitation will go out this afternoon. Uh, okay, the legislature, paid family leave. That bill is on its way to other committees and passed out of the House General and Housing Committee, H-66, on Thursday afternoon by a vote of 9 to 3 along party lines. Uh, Democrats and Progressive 9, Republicans 3, the bill would guarantee 12 weeks of paid leave, uh, offer 100% what they call wage replacement, 
capped at Vermont's average weekly wage, $1,135 in 2022. It's the most generous benefit of all states with paid family leave programs, according to an analysis by the legislature. Um, now, how would we pay for that? It would be paid for by an estimated 0.5% payroll tax, although the state would adjust that levy on an annual basis based on claims. Now, for you non-political junkies out there, this doesn't mean that the paid family leave bill is now law. It means that it has been approved by a key policy committee, by the way, chaired by Waterbury's own Tom Stevens, a veteran of the legislature, he's been uh, that chair of that committee for many years, and uh, that bill came out nine to three. It it doesn't now go straight to the governor or to the Senate. It goes to other committees, which have to talk about it um, in terms of how they're going to fund this thing. Now, we're going to interrupt my soliloquy on all this because Lola Dufort from uh, Seven Days is joining us on the line. I know she's got a tight schedule, so we're going to put her right in the mix. Lola, welcome to the show. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Good morning. Uh, good morning. A small correction. I'm with VT Digger. What did I say? <laughs> you said Seven Days. Oh, my God. Obviously not a big deal. Okay. Well, oh, with apologies to the Alzheimer's Association out there, that's got to be what's going on. I'm so sorry because we're having a Seven Days person on later in the show. There you, go. there you go. Okay, well, you yeah. called in Lola Dufort from VT Digger. Uh, as I was talking my way through the paid family leave bill, H66, which came out of the House General and Housing Committee on a vote of 9 to 3 yesterday afternoon. Yes, that's right. And now it's on to the money committee. So it still has a very, very long way to go. Um, you know, and I think for me, the most interesting things that are going to happen are are in the Senate. Um, I, I think that it's probably going to continue picking up momentum in the House. You know, it has over 100 sponsors there. Um, and, you know, the policy committee didn't make any really major changes to the bill as it was introduced. It's still 12 weeks. Um, and I think it's still 100% wage replacement capped at the state's average weekly wage. Um, so altogether, we're looking at, you know, as it stands, um, and obviously it uh, can and uh, almost certainly will change. But as it stands, we're looking at a bill that would, you know, enact uh, the, I think the, like, legislature, um, the state's, um, the legislature's fiscal analysts. I don't know why that was so difficult for me to say. <laughs> Um, has said that, you know, as it stands, it's the, it would enact the most generous, uh, paid leave policy in the country. Okay. Um, so 12 so, week, 12 weeks of, of leave, uh, for parents having a baby, uh, but there's bereavement in there. What, what is, can you sort of yeah, break it down for us? Yeah. It's 12 weeks for most things. Uh, bereavement, I believe is two weeks. So you wouldn't get three months off for uh, okay. uh, bereavement. Uh, but yes, it's, it's, you know, medical needs, it's, uh, parental leave. Um, so what about, so, leave in there. so here's one for me. What about, uh, I want leave to take care of my ailing 92 year old mother. Is that covered by the bill? 
I believe so, but you know what? I yeah. would actually have to double check that. Somebody um, stopped believe- me and somebody stopped me in the street the other day and said, you know, they're talking about uh, babies, uh, time off to have a child, but what they're not talking about. And it's probably in the bill is seniors. There's a, you know, as, as an aging state, people need time off to take care of their mother or their father. Yes. And there's been a lot of conversation by advocates, uh, for this bill about that specifically, right? This isn't just children. It's also just about the sandwich generation, which is talk, taking care of, um, of parents, um, and also of children. And actually, um, there was a press conference on this last week and a woman came up to speak and uh she has early onset Alzheimer's. Yeah. And she was talking about, you know, she was like, Well, why does this affect me? I don't work anymore. You know, you might be wondering and it's because uh, you know, my child can't come with me to my doctor's appointment, which I would very much like her to do because I can't remember what my doctor tells me. Right. Uh, because they can't take time off of work. They don't have adequate leave. I can't remember what my doctor tells me. So, But, yeah. but then again, I can't remember who works for seven days and who works for VT Digger. Um, Lola, uh, for the non-political junkies uh, in the audience, can you explain what it means for the family leave bill to now go to the money committee's ways and means and appropriations? That's a big right. deal that people need to understand. Right. Yes. Uh, so a bill usually starts in a policy committee. Um, and in this case, it was uh, House General and um, randomly housing is also thrown in there. But anyways, they talk about, you know, the, the policy objectives that they would like a bill to achieve and they work on that. And then once they're done, they send it on to the money committees and we have a tax writing committee. Uh, that's House Ways and Means. Um, and then the Appropriations com- Committee, that's the Budget Writing Committee. And those committees decide basically how we're going to raise money to spend, uh, you know, how we're going to raise money if we're going to enact this bill and how much we think uh, we're going to spend on it. Um, and, you know, big kind of outstanding questions, really the biggest outstanding questions about this bill are, uh, you know, are we going to use a payroll tax to pay for it um, if we're going to do it? Um, and also what the startup costs are going to be, you know, right now there's 20 million in the bill as a startup cost, but I think it's widely acknowledged that it would cost a lot more to stand up just to start. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, those are kind of the thorniest conversations to have about the bill. And those are very much to come now. Uh, I believe it had, to Healthways and Means next, and one of its lead sponsors is Emily Kornheiser, or really the lead sponsor is Emily Kornheiser, who chairs that committee. So, um, I, I, you know, I expect uh, at least in the House's tax writing committee, it will get, you know, a strong, warm reception and continue on its way. Um, again, I think the question is what will happen. Uh, once it gets over to the Senate, which has sent different signals about how it prioritizes uh, paid leave, right? Yeah. And, you know, when you hear legislative leaders in the Senate, they're much more likely not to say, you know, uh, no paid family leave, but, well, we have a lot of competing needs, a lot of things are expensive. Um, and And so I think... 
that's the big question is, you know, what do they do to it in the Senate? And then how does the House respond to that? Right. And, you know, in the building, I am increasingly hearing, well, it's going to leave the House with over 100 votes. But, you know, is that coalition going to fall apart if the Senate sends back something that is much more moderate? Right, exactly. Okay, there is, in addition to the paid family leave bill, which has a big price tag on it, coming out of a key house committee, there is a child care bill doing the same thing over in the Vermont Senate. And then if you throw in free school meals, uh, millions and millions for housing, um, where, try to take us into April and May and look ahead to the collision of priorities among Democrats that's going to take place. Yeah, I. Um, <laughs> that's the big question, right? Like April and May are going to be very messy. Um, and I think right now we're in a, you know, we're in a sort of lull where we like we know what's coming, uh, but the, the knives haven't quite come out yet. Um, right. I, I don't think that housing will quite compete with those other priorities that you cited in the same way, just because when we're talking about housing investments, well, I mean, the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board does want um, one important ongoing commit, um, ongoing commitment, financial commitment from the state. And that's, um, this, this, this may sound weedy to your listeners, but basically, by law, they're entitled to 50% of the property transfer tax, which means that like <laughs> – Which means uh, when you sell a house in this state, if you look at the fine print, there's a little tax there that you pay. Right. Yes. And about half of it is supposed to go to the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board. And, you know, kind of the the thought was when the market is hot, they get a lot of money, which also helps them build more affordable housing and also conserve um, land. But um, and then when the market is less hot, they get less money. But, you know, at least it it kind of follows that way Um, a succession of legislatures and governors have um, (laughs) kind of used this this uh, language that you can use to ignore laws if you are lawmakers um, right. and have just sort of decided what they get on an annual basis. And sometimes they're made whole with one-time funding. But anyways, so the Vermont Hous- Housing and Conservation Board wants that practice to stop. But in general, what we're talking about when we're talking about housing money, is it's one-time money, right? Um, the state still has these kind of enormous surpluses. And, uh, you know, the housing folks have been able to make a quite credible case that um, building is a great way to use one-time money, right? Because right. you only build a house once. Um, but, Lola, but Lola, but Lola, okay, let's go to what is known as the Budget Adjustment Act, and I'll try to do this quickly. So it, every year the legislature does a true-up of the current budget. So we're now in the 2023 budget and the House has passed a budget adjustment bill and they've sent it over to the Senate and the, and the Senate Appropriations Committee yesterday made some big changes to the bill. So the collision we're talking about between Democrats on all things budgets is going to be contained in that discussion as well, right? Yes, and there's also an ongoing conversation about housing. Because, sorry, the point I was going to make is um, a lot of the housing conversation is one time, whereas you know when we're talking about paid leave right. and childcare, that that's ongoing funding, and so you're, you're, it's kind of a different financial conversation. 
like, you know, paid leave and child care and universal meals are competing kind of more directly right. than with the other stuff. Right. Uh, but yes, so there are two budget bills in Vermont. There's the big bill. It's literally what people call it, the big bill. Um, and then there's the budget adjustment, which is uh, this mid-year true-up, which is just when you're almost done with the current fiscal year, the legislature passes a second budget bill, which like fixes problems, right? Oh, we're overspending in this category. We're underspending in this category. Let's right. you know shift things around. Um, this used to be pretty boring and like you know like a, a ten million dollar or twenty million dollar bill, and now it's somewhere on the order of three hundred because we are in this weird COVID yeah. COVID economy where there's a lot of weird money floating around. Um, yeah. So, Sloshing yeah, uh, around in the trough, if to use the farm analogy. Yes, there you go. Um, <laughs> so uh, right now, the big items of contention in this year's Budget Adjustment Act are about housing and specifically the um, uh, the state's emergency housing program that uh, pays to house uh, homeless Vermonters in motels and hotels across the state. Right. Um, and this is something that Vermont has done for, you know, well over a decade now, I think. And, but, but it used to do so on a very, very limited basis. You know, it was like only when it was really cold, they would like pay for one night at a time. Um, but during the pandemic era, there was, you know, this almost unlimited flood of federal money that came in. And Vermont kind of overnight scaled this up so that, you know, I don't want to say every, but like ver the vast majority of people who were homeless could all of a sudden um, get a room in a hotel for a very long time and have basically been there since the pandemic started. Although, um, you know, capacity has been lost. Um, and so I don't want to say that everyone can get, you know, who wants a room can get a room because that's not the case. But right. still, uh, the majority of our homeless population right now is in those hotels. And uh, the big question now is, well, what do we do now that the federal money is drying up, right? We're expected to not have any fed or not have substantial amounts of federal money to spend on that program basically as of March 31st. So the big question before the state is, you know, do we wind down this program? If we do, how do we do it? Um, or do we keep it going, right? And housing um, homeless advocates, of course, have said we want to keep this going. It's uh, far from a perfect program. There are many, many problems with it. But we literally have no alternative, right? Like there aren't enough shelter beds for um, – for people who do not have a home in Vermont and our homelessness problem is very, very bad. In fact, it probably is the second worst in the country. I mean, it is according to federal data. Um, so, so the house passed its budget adjustment act with that money continuing that program. What did the Senate appropriations committee do yesterday? Yeah, the Senate appropriations committee. Well, they did this on Wednesday, Wednesday, um, sorry. But so, yes, the House said we're going to continue funding for this program until June 30th. Um, so basically, we're going to buy three months until we figure out what we're going to do. 
And the Senate Appropriations Committee, uh, you know, finished their response. And their response was, well, we will also kind of continue it until June 30th. But on May 31st, these new eligibility requirements are going to kick in um, that, you know, uh, limit this to certain populations. So people, this is not a... I don't have the list in front of me, so people should not consider this uh, totally exhaustive. But people with disabilities, people who are 16 over, um, people who are fleeing domestic violence, uh, people with children, pregnant people. Um, and I said, you know, we're going to start whittling it down at that point. And it's the, the difference between um, the actual dollar amount that both sides are suggesting to spend is actually like pretty small. They're like far apart by like 2 million, which nowadays is not a lot of money um, for the state budget. But, you know, the Senate is sending a very strong policy signal that they really do mean to wind down this program. Right. Um, And the house is, is sending a different signal. Right. Yeah. And, and Lola, where is Governor Scott in in this discussion? Well, the, the governor would like to wind down this program as soon as possible. Yeah, um, he would have done so on March thirty first. Um, so he went to the Senate and he, you know, said like I would be willing to live with an extension um, until June. You know, to have those three extra months, but with a limited, restricted eligibility. Um, and the Senate did something, you know, more, they basically kept, kept it going as is for an extra two months instead of three. And then, you know, the new popul the new eligibility requirements kick in. So it's, they were kind of trying to, you know, find a position that was between the governor and the house. Right. Um, so they, you know, they split the baby. Uh, I believe that Having lived for four days with no power uh, in cold weather around Christmas, uh, I, I, and, you know, not, not coming close to living outside, but, uh, where do these people go when the program runs out? Are, are uh, we, is yeah. it simplistic to say it's June and the weather's nice? I mean, that's what some people in the building are saying, you know? Um, I should note that in the governor's budget, there is money. So in his proposal for next year's budget, he put aside about 26 million for emergency housing, um, which would basically pay to kind of relax eligibility for this program again in, in an expanded way, um, during the winter, right? So like, the idea would be that um, if you don't have a place to go in February, you could come back to the hotel. Um, but, you know, even with the the program as is, you know, when we had that really cold, you know, that terrible cold snap a few weeks ago, back when it was still winter, um, you know, there were still a lot of people outside. And, you know, advocates and service providers were scrambling, trying to get, like, gas cards right. to people so that they could run their car overnight. Okay. Um, we we have got to take a break. I want to talk for another nine hours about this subject. Um, 
If Lola has to go, you are excused. Uh, Lola Dufort from VT Digger, thank you. If you change your mind and can come back on for another 10 minutes or so, we would love to have you. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back, and our guest is Lola Dufort from VT Digger. And... uh, what we specialize here on this show is taking you behind the scenes. So I want to go. Lola Dufort spends her entire day in the Vermont State House. She's there every day. She's walking the halls. She's in the committees. She's interviewing legislators and other players so that she can get the best information possible. Lola, I'm interested in. We've talked now about the paid family leave bill, the Budget Adjustment Act. Uh, Lord knows we haven't even touched the big budget. Um, I'm interested in taking listeners behind the scenes to understand the relationship between the House, the Senate, and the governor and how all that works. I'll set the scene by saying th- there is a massive Democratic majority in the Vermont legislature, 103, I think, Democrats and uh, several other progressives. 37 or so Republicans in the House, same ratio in the Senate, and yet there's a very, very popular Republican governor. So how does that work um, in your reporting? I mean... Badly or uh, or well? <laughs> uh, I guess it depends on how you define badly or well right. and also on the issue. Um you know, I think where there is genuine policy agreement or at least, you know, common ground, there is real conversation between the uh, governor's office and legislature, uh, legislators. Yeah. And I think where there is not, um, you know, folks are trying to count to 100 in the House, which is how much how many votes you need to override a veto and they're counting to 20 in the Senate, which is how many votes you need to override a veto. Um, And I I think it's, I think it's that simple. You know, I I don't think that like there is a, like it's a pretty, uh, no one's too petty. Well, I mean, there's, there's some big egos in that building. Sure. uh, And in the governor's office as well. But, uh, but in general, like, I think that where there and there is in some places, uh, you know, agreement, at least among some lawmakers. Right. Like people are not like I think you see this in the budget adjustment conversation. Right. The House has, you know, I mean, well, they agreed to everything that the governor asked for in the budget adjustment. You know, like they didn't say no to anything. They just said we want to spend more. Right. Um, and including $9.2 million for organic dairy farmers. Yes, including $9.2 million for organic dairy farmers, $50 million for the Vermont Housing and Conservation Board, and then obviously extending the, um, the, uh, the emergency housing until June 30th. Right. Um, and then the Senate, you know, said, well, we want to we want to come closer to the the governor's position, 
But I also think it's because, you know, the, the chair of the uh, Senate Appropriations Committee tends to have, um, you know, a point of view that aligns a little bit more with the governor, right? Like, I, I, I don't really think... Even though she, she, even though she's a Democrat, now, this would be Jane Kitchell from Danville, uh, Caledonia County. Right, exactly. She's always been, you know, one of the more moderate members of the Senate. So, you know, even though she's coming closer to the governor's position, I don't necessarily think it's, you know, in the necessarily in the name of bipartisanship. I think she probably also agrees in in many important respects with his point of view. Right. Um. And so I think it's, I think it's not necessarily, it's often not necessarily about, you know, the party that you are part of. It's about who you agree with on certain issues. Um, and, and that's a, it, isn't that interesting? I, I love that you brought that up because that is a, a very Vermont thing that has been lost in Washington, D.C., where the parties are now like tribes. Uh, in Vermont, you, you, the, Jane Kitchell, the Democratic chair of the Senate Appropriations Committee, can agree with the governor and argue for his position. Right. Or a version of his position. I mean, or you know, a version. she didn't, yeah, she didn't, uh, she didn't take what he suggested in the governor's office as, you know, suggested that they, uh, are not, not, not mad, but you know, not delighted yeah. with what the Senate put out. I, I don't want to say that she like or suggest that she rubber stamped his suggestions because she did not. But you know, she came closer to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't think Jane Kitchell rubber stamps anything. No, no, she does not. She right. does not. Um, and so I think you know, I think it's I think it's always nuanced. Um, okay. Now pl- let's Go get ahead. let's put you in the prediction business, which always okay. makes journalists uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, and which I get wrong all the time. You have a paid family leave bill that's moving. You have a child care bill that's moving. Both will raise a tax, uh, probably a payroll tax on employers. Um, mm-hmm. You have a desire to make uh, school meals uh, no charge for kids. Right. Um, we'll put aside the housing money because there's lots and lots of federal COVID related money and, and there seems to be agreement on that, uh, at, at a, at a high level. Um, it's now May 1st. Uh, are, are these, does paid family leave and childcare and emergency housing and, and meals, does it all come into one giant funnel and somebody has to deal with it at the, when it comes out of the funnel? Where does this go? Uh, do, do, uh, here's the simple question. Does child care and paid family leave both pass this legislature? Yeah, that's the question, isn't it? Right. Um, I don't, I have no idea. I, I genuinely have no idea. Yeah, I don't um, either. <laughs> I, <laughs> um, I, but here's you know the what? thing. Here's the okay, thing. Here, here's, when, here's when the Democrats theory. have an overwhelming advantage, they're not afraid of Republican uh, pushback at the polls if they do this. No. Again, the question on those two issues is just whether or not the Democratic coalition, Democratic and progressive and independent, right? Like some independents might vote for, for these things as well. Right. Um, you, you know, whether or not that coalition sticks together, right? Because that's a huge tent. Like I think – 
people forget how big the Democratic tent is. Yeah. Um, and there are, and it's, it's often not about like whether or not you have a D next to your name. It's like which district elected you, you know, and what's, what's their temperament. Um, yeah. Norwich, if you're, if you're from Norwich, you're, you're thinking about this a lot differently than if you live in Bethel. Right. Right. Um, and so I, I think like that's, I mean, I guess probably the safest bet, if I'm going to predict, is that a version of both is passed, and they're just both much more moderate than what we're looking at now. Interesting. You know, um, like that's because that's the easiest way to say that you got something done. And I mean, it's still getting something done, but it's, you know, not. Um, and so I guess that's probably the. But again, like I am, I am guessing because you were ins- insisting that I guess this is not. <laughs> and we have a record on the wall in this studio. We hold you to the uh, predictions, and when then we demand that you come back on the show and account for your mistakes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Um, one more question. There, I, I had the head of Emerge Vermont on the show the other day, and we were talking about how different the legislature is today from past years. I'm old enough to remember when it was a bunch of white guys sitting around deciding all of these issues. Uh, it is dramatically different. I must say, I, the chair of the Ways and Means Committee, Emily Kornheiser, looked me dead in the eye the other day and said, we are passing both of these bills, child care and, and, uh, and paid leave. Um, it is a different body. It's 45% women. Uh, and yet there is a generational uh, divide also between those who have been there for a long time and many, many younger legislators who have a lot of power. They chair committees. That appropriations committee is a sight to behold. There is a lot of brain power and a lot of skills on that House Appropriations Committee. Um, and they're determined to take action. And, you know, so there's going to be a collision between generations and, uh, and, and the sort of the fact that women dominate the money committees, uh, and the power in this body is, is a fascinating dynamic. Yeah, it is. Int- I mean, women have dominated the policy committee, uh, sorry, the money committees, which are the most powerful committees for a while now. I think, yeah, what's interesting is so they're all women they're all democrats of course yeah but there's also like a lot of right like as you said there are a lot of new legislators a lot of them are younger a lot of them are much more progressive um obviously the the republican uh opposition is is much reduced and is i'm not irrelevant but you know very close to it um right and so, but there is, right, even if you look at the money committees, there um, is a very wide spectrum in terms of ideology, right? Like, there is a lot of daylight between Emily Kornheiser, who's, you know, the tax writing chair in the House, and uh, Jane Kitchell, who yeah. uh, is the budget writing chair in the Senate, and probably, like, best personifies the, you know, the old guard in the Senate. Um, yeah, you give you so, give her wide berth in the hallway. 
yeah, I mean, um, <laughs> she is, you know, she's an institution, both, you know, feared and loved um, and very, very respected. But so is Emily Kornheiser. But right. yeah, I mean, there is um, there is a lot of daylight between uh, between those two um, and also between Diane Lamper and, you know, Ann Cummings, who is the chair of Senate Finance. They write that. Texas in the Senate, and Diane Lanford is the new um, chair of House Appropriations. So my point is, you know, yeah, they're all women, but, like, they're from different generations. They have different sets of beliefs, um, and it's it's not simple. It's really not simple. It's never Uh, – that's right. Democracy is not simple. Lola Dufort from VT Digger, you're really kind to stay on with us for so long to do our week in review. And please go and uh, roam those halls and committees and report back at a later date. Good, thanks. Okay, thank you. You can read Lola's stuff in v- at vtdigger.org. You can sign up for their newsletter, Final Reading, which is a, a daily must-read. Uh, we're going to take a break. And uh, we're going to come back and talk about this emergency housing uh, piece of the budget uh, with uh, Brenda Siegel, a homeless advocate uh, across the board and uh, expert on all these issues, former candidate for governor. Uh, I'm Kevin Ellis. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to The Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. We are going to stay with our week in review subject right now uh, and welcome in uh, housing advocate um, and former candidate for governor uh, and and all sorts of other expertise, which we'll get to, uh, Brenda Siegel. Brenda, welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having me. I want to stay with the emergency housing program, and you're an expert on this. So, and I am not. So, uh, the 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 House of Representatives passed a budget adjustment bill that extended the emergency housing program, in which people experiencing homelessness and others uh, are housed in hotels. The governor wanted to end that program. The House extended it. The Senate Appropriations Committee has now uh, sort of uh, uh, compromised and will extend the program, but with limitations. Uh, this is complicated stuff. It is also emotional stuff as we look outside right now at uh, dark rain coming down. Can you take us through the situation politically with the emergency housing program? Sure, yes. The the um, budget adjustment that the House passed put in $21 million, which would have extended the full program through June as it stands during what's called adverse weather. And adverse weather means um, that is really just during the cold months that the that who is allowed to get into GA and stay into the stay in that hotel housing yeah. is expanded. Um, and so when it went to the Senate, um, there was a lot of back and forth about whether it would be cut quite a lot, um, and they landed at eighteen and a half million, and then they took um, a certain part of the population and said that this part of the population um, will not be eligible anymore in the end of May, and 
um, put about $5 million in instead of that $7.5 million for that portion of the population. Now, the problem is that I think we have a, the governor and others have some challenges when they start talking about the people experiencing homelessness where um, they separate them out into who's more vulnerable and who's less vulnerable. And the reality is that according to really comprehensive research, within three weeks to 30 days of living on the street, um, you have almost definitely developed a, some sort of mental illness and trauma. And you have a physicalness by very closely thereafter, and your health just start, starts to decline, and your length of life. So I think we, when we're start, when we're calling people less and more vulnerable, we're getting into pretty messy territory. Pretty messy territory, right? So, uh, the, the, and 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 the Budget Adjustment Act, which is a temporary, which is a, a true up of the 2023 budget is not the end of this program. We're going to keep talking about this. This is going to be, this argument's going to go on in the big budget bill, um, on and on. And, but, so, but I guess my question is, okay, it all ends in June and then the people living in hotels are now not living in hotels? So this is what has happened every time, right? So for the, all through COVID, um, when we started talking about transitioning off of it, we're, three months at a time extending it instead of figuring out what the what a strong strategic transitional plan is Um, and and a strong strategic transitional plan on this issue by the way keeps everyone housed we don't decide that some people are okay to return to the street Um, and that's sort of that's been the disagreement between the administration many legislators and the administration and housing partners Um, and so when we're looking at this funding, the, my concern about the budget adjustment is that if we exit some of the people in the hotels right now in the end of May, we create a fiscal year budget gap between FY23 and FY24. And some of the people that are exited, if they don't find a shelter to land in, um, will be lost to the system. Some will experience relapse and overdose. Some will um, have an, an additional trauma or mental illness. And um, we will have trouble transitioning those folks then into housing, which makes our communities much safer if we can get everybody into housing. Okay. Now, uh, let me put on uh, – I'll wear a hat uh, of the either the governor or the Senate Appropriations Chair, Jane Kitchell, and say, but Brenda – we cannot keep funding this program forever. There, we have to do it a better way. I heard somebody, a, a senator, say these hotels are are not fit for human beings to live in. We need better housing. And nobody disagrees with that. Okay. And I would say, and I would always say in response, if when someone says that to me, is. Uh, the street is also not fit for people to live in, and um, people need shelter. And so we have to figure out a strong transitional plan. And so I, the next step for housing partners, and they've begun to work on it already, we've all begun to work on it already, is to come up with that strategic plan to transition these folks from the hotel system into transitional and permanent housing. And the, um, it isn't going to all happen at once. On July 1st, we aren't going to be able to have a plan for every single person that's in the hotel, but maybe we can begin to make this transition and then we start to um, not decrease funding willy-nilly, but decrease funding as we have a transition for each um, group of people. 
uh, and in, in different geographic areas because it also matters what geographic area you're in, if you're a family, what school your kids are in, um, if you are someone with substance use disorder that you can have access to your treatment, um, if you're someone who has DCF involvement that you can make your visits with your kids. Those things all matter, so it can't just be anywhere that we transition people to. We do have to meet the needs of the people that we are working with. Brenda Siegel, how many people are we talking about here? How many people are now living in hotels? So that's been a little bit confusing, um, getting that data and information. Um, we we know that there's somewhere in the neighborhood of 3,000 people in the state experiencing homelessness. Um, they are dispersed. Some are still outside. Um, they are but dispersed between shelters and hotels. So I have actually recently just asked for that data, and I'm hoping to get it soon. So if now I want to go up to 30,000 feet here. Uh, it, so we – Vermont brags a lot about we take care of each other, uh, and yet we've got more than 2,000 people living on the streets. Uh, how did we get here? So first of all, I want to say that we are not only um, do we have that number, but we are worse than most pl- other places in the country. Our, we are number two for rate of homelessness in uh, this in the whole country and only behind California, who has a severe homelessness challenge. Um, and we got here because as are there a very a combination of factors, but it was not just COVID, which I think is often thrown around as the reason. Um, we had a looming housing crisis for a long time. Anyone that's low income knows that finding housing was challenging 20 years ago when I was trying to find it, um, and that the rents did not match with voucher programs, and that was already happening. And so that became more and more uh, of a challenge. Then you add in Airbnb, which took long-term rentals off the market, and then you um, include low wages versus raising rents, and now people are either being evicted because they are not going to because the landlord wants to raise the rent, or they can't make the rent, and so now they're being evicted for that reason or not able to find an apartment. In addition, we did not keep up with the need in the way that we were developing permanent homes, and so. The, our way out of this, which I think is the most important part, is to come up with a long-term strategic plan that addresses emergency, transitional, and permanent housing. And that's the hardest thing to do. And uh, But you'll be at the table, among others. Brenda Siegel, thank you so much for joining us. This is a complicated, emotional, and really difficult issue, but uh, we'll we'll have you back on to talk about it more. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to come back with Bob Nay from D.C. talking about Chinese balloons and Lord knows what else. It's uh, the Friendly Pioneer, WDEV. We're back, and we're going to go straight to Washington, D.C., but what we're really going to do is go to, what I'm going to pronounce this wrong, East Palestine, Ohio, Bob Ney, our correspondent, is on the line as he is from Ohio, and we're going to talk about the train derailment and the uh, – I'm not going to use a swear word, Bob Ney, but uh, there a lot of things are coming into view here, government uh, incompetence, uh, slow reaction by the Biden administration, corporate greed, lobbyists. Tell us what happened on this train derailment. 
Sure, Kevin. By the way, you pronounced it correctly. One of the few. <laughs> you got the you got the name right. All right. Uh, East Palestine is right in um, the area called Columbia in County, Ohio. Congressman Trafficant had it. I had Wellsville, which is down from it, was my slice of that county. Then I went southward. So very, very familiar with that area. It's also 74 miles from my house and, and my uh, entire family's uh, homes in the Ohio Valley. And we all border the river down there. So therefore, you know, there's a lot of been a lot of concern in our family amongst obviously all the people plus five million people that rely on that Ohio River Basin for water. Having said that, it now has turned into who knew what, when, and why didn't they do this and that. So the people of East Palestine are you know, very nervous. Norfolk and Southern Railroad has said they're going to give a thousand dollars per person, but you know that's obviously. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's we might have lost Bob, but uh, he'll come back on in a second. Um, this is a train derailment with cars filled with a toxic chemical and uh it <laughs> uh, the the head of the EPA just showed up 2 weeks uh after the derailment um and i i and and secretary of transportation Pete Buttigieg uh is blaming the bite the uh the Trump administration um New York Times is, is reporting that, uh, that the, 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 the brakes on these trains were of Civil War vintage. Uh, I listened to a podcast about this the other day in which, in which, Bob, do we have you back? Yes, I'm sorry. I lost the connection from my end. Oh, okay. Uh, please go ahead. I was just getting into Civil War era brakes on train cars. I was, uh, the slow, uh, Buttigieg, uh, blaming the Trump administration and, uh, the EPA administrator showing up two weeks after this thing happened. Did we lose him again? Yeah, I think we lost him again. Uh, uh, and I, I gotta say, uh, it, it, uh, Federal government response, boy, if there's one thing that the President of the United States can do is he can send aid in the form of people and experts to the site, to the site of a place like this. And for some reason, that didn't happen. Um, the EPA administrator's visit comes the day after uh, he's responding to a request from Governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, for emergency assistance. Um, they lit these chemicals on fire. There was a giant plume of, of smoke and chemicals released into the air, not to mention the, the soil and the, the nearby riverway. Um, Sherrod, uh, Governor, uh, sorry, uh, Democratic Senator Sherrod Brown said no community should have to go through something like this. Um, I am, I gotta say, it is not enough for the Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who oversees uh, railroad safety, to say, to blame the Trump administration. Bob Ney, uh, what do you make of all this? Well, that's the big question. I mean, this is going to go back and forth to you know, all kinds of different issues. But when Buttigieg blamed the Trump administration, there's a problem, and that's because if you look at the whole history of it, there was an executive order which this break 
safety system, ACT system, as it's called, was hollowed out by the Obama administration, further hollowed out by the Trump administration. And when I say hollowed out, deemed not to be necessary. So when one administration blames the other, you could kind of throw the fault line all the way around. And so that that argument's not going to go very far. And then the big question is, why are there not safety breaks? Also, why were the chemicals not labeled um, hazardous on that train? Yeah, yeah, and 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 this is, as you know better than most, East Palestine, Ohio. This is a place that time forgot. This is a railroad town, uh, it's a blue collar town, uh, and you know, with people who are struggling. And now they're worried about what can I wash my dishes with the tap water? I certainly can't drink the water, and and. Uh, I, I I don't I, and and Norfolk uh, the Norfolk Railroad uh, I'm gonna guess here 14 billion in revenue uh, they're paying stock dividend they're paying uh, uh, they're buying back stock and giving uh, dividends to shareholders um, this is a potpourri of an issue that turns off Americans of all stripes to government. Uh, I don't think it's about Trump or Obama or or Biden. It's about why can't you people keep us safe in our communities? I, I think that's what it's going to boil down to. Well, it is. And, you know, our governor went in right away, Mike DeWine, but my own uh, congressman down there took four days. I mean, we were the EPA was in there yesterday. Think about that. How many days later? Uh, I mean, the response was sort of like, okay, you're on your own. Everybody went to Facebook. Of course, there was some truth on Facebook and some things that weren't true because it was it was people posting. My own relatives had called the uh, local county water authority to ask about the safety of the water because they said, boil your water. And uh, they said, well, we don't know. It's up to the state and the feds. So, the, you know, the response time is horrible. You made a good point about the 4,000-some people in East Palestine because, you know, if they want, if they have repercussions, who's going to buy their house? How yeah. are they going to move? Yeah, and and for the railroad company to say we'll give you a thousand dollars a person, a that is, I, I boy, I'm supposed to say be a non. I'm supposed to stay fair as a radio host, but that that's right. just a naked effort to forestall the lawsuits that are coming. Right. They would have been better to have either given you know nothing or or at least some more and made it very clear this is just simply to, to get you by because a lot of people had to leave they had to go to places they had to rent hotel rooms you know uh some people were leery to go back there were 3,500 fish killed by the way 3,500 some they've counted yeah they were killed yeah and i see that joe manchin the across the border in west virginia is blasting biden and, and Buttigieg for their response to this Right. The response was so slow. And like I said, then Buttigieg came up and talked about Trump. But if you if you and I researched that because when I first heard it, I thought, okay, Trump did an executive order. But when you look at the reality of it, how it went, hollowed out by one administration, hollowed out further by another. Yet when Biden became president, transportation never tried to put the executive order back. Be pre pre Obama. Yeah. You know that's not going to that's not going to cut it. That those arguments might as well just go away right now. And they need to find out how they stop this because, you know, there was another derailment which they were lucky, 
in, I think it was Michigan, where luckily nothing spilled out. Yeah, if I if I know Joe Biden, and I do not, uh, he's gonna uh, he's gonna uh, yell at some people in a uh, in a staff meeting this morning, and he's gonna take to the microphones and try to deal with this because this is not acceptable at any level. Right, right, and and I think you're right, and I do I know him, so I think I think you're 100 percent right. Yeah, and, and you know, and it will be inartful. Uh, it will be uh, not very well scripted. But at least, I mean, these people need to hear from the president of the United States on this. This is this is not the way presidents uh, should respond to catastrophes. No, and, and like also, this. you you know, you make a good point. It's not the way they should respond. And also, what about other communities are out there? What about this safety break? I mean, if I've got a train going through. My town now, I want to know, you know, same thing going to happen. Is there a safety break? I guess if this certain warning break, because there was a bearing that overheated, it became red hot, and that's what started this. And if there was an indicator there, they could have stopped the train. Right. Right. And, and of course, uh, rail is how we move, and trucking, oh, yeah. is how we move uh, the worst of the worst, uh, oil, gas, uh, uh, chemicals, um, nuclear waste. Um, right. We move it all over the country. Nuclear missiles. Uh, and, the, boy, these derailments get scary. Um, sure. Bob Ney, uh, thank you so much for joining thank us. Uh, sorry to dominate it with one issue, but uh, – oh, no Sorry for the for the cell coverage. That's that's uh, my fault out here. Oh, not at all. Uh, be safe and uh, thank you for calling in thank this you. week. Okay, take thank care. Thank you so much. Bye bye. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Seven Days reporter Allison Novak, and we're going to talk about the police chief in Northfield, Vermont. Stay with us. We'll be right back on WDEV. We're back. We're going to be joined in. Ten seconds by Allison Novak of Seven Days, uh, the the uh, great news source out of Burlington. Uh, but I'm going to read you the lead of her story this week. John Heliphant is one of the most vocal parents in the Orange Southwest School District. The father of three accused the school district of pro- promoting leftism and subtle critical race theory for canceling a Chick-fil-A fundraiser because the company's support of anti-LGBTQ groups. He has criticized the Randolph Union High School for representing students around LGBTQ issues and the anti-Biden chant at a basketball game. All of this uh, by a guy uh, who is also at the same time the police chief in Northfield, Vermont. Allison Novak, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. What is going on? (laughs) Well... So you have a parent in a school district who comes to essentially every school board meeting and shares his thoughts about different issues. Um, John Helfant last spring called for the um, Black Lives Matter flag at Randolph Union High School to be taken down. It was. There was a new policy put in place saying only the U.S. and Vermont flags could fly um, in the district. Um, and this this past fall when there was a pretty big controversy involving a transgender student using a girl's locker room. He waded into that controversy as well. And 
um, even wrote a, a letter that was published on Vermont Daily Chronicle, basically accusing this 14-year-old um, girl of voyeurism and that the school district was accessories to voyeurism because of their letting her use the um, locker room that aligned with her gender identity. Um, and so some people in the town are really are in Northfield, where he's police chief, are really upset and have complained to the to the town manager and select board. So this raises a whole host of issues. When I got through paragraph three of your great story, I thought, okay, there's a First Amendment issue, and this guy's got a right to say what he do what he wants on his personal time. But then, as I read further. I started reading the comments of people in Northfield who who are on the receiving end of his law enforcement, and I started sympathizing with them, saying, I don't want to be pulled over by uh, a police chief who has these kinds of views. Uh, these views are interfering with his public duties. And now the, the his bosses in in the in the town of Northfield have to deal with this sticky issue, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, and I think you know there's the fear that if they took action against him, um, you know he could file a wrongful termination lawsuit. Um, and there was just a case um, recently in Windsor in which this uh, principal at a at a school in Windsor had spoken out um, on Facebook about the Black Lives Matter um, flag or, or movement and was fired and she just settled for $650,000 with the school district. So I do think, you know, there are some real concerns about, you know, whether John Helfand, you know, would have a case if he, if he brought a wrongful termination suit against the the town, if he was fired. You quote uh, a grandmother of Northfield students uh, in the community there as saying, these remarks have a chilling effect on all children, not just LGBTQ, not just the kids who don't subscribe to the gender binary. Any kid who feels like he or she or they might be different from the rest. That was, uh, that, that, that stopped me, um, and, and expanded the, the, the subject from, whether this police chief has the right to do this or what the school district should do. And and you, I think, appropriately focused on what what children are, how children might be reacting to this. Yeah, I spoke to the parent of a transgender elementary school student um, who asked to remain anonymous, you know, to pr- protect the identity of her child. But essentially she said that, you know, she sees what John Halfant has said about the transgender community, about transgender students in Randolph, and she feels like she doesn't feel confident that he would, you know, have her child back if, for example, um, when she got a little older, someone called the police about her being in a bathroom or locker room that, you know, aligned with her gender identity but wasn't necessarily her biological Sex and so um, you know I do think yeah people people who have children people who have loved ones who are LGBTQ are um, you know worried with some reason that you know he'd be able to be unbiased toward toward them. 
Okay, now let's add another piece onto this uh, load, which is the the. Remember, everybody, police make arrests and they uh, bring someone to the state's attorney's office to be charged or not charged with the crime. Former, uh, both the former state's attorney for Washington County and the current state's attorney, Michelle Donnelly, um, are I'm not I'll use the word refusing, but I, that may be too strict, are refusing to automatically consider the Northfield police chief's uh, actions when he makes arrests, meaning he has no credibility with them. They have issued a letter saying that he doesn't have the credibility that he should not be believed when he makes arrests. It's called a Brady letter. Uh, that's a serious charge against a chief of police and makes his actions as the police chief all the more suspect, right? Yeah, so that letter was issued in 2020 by then Washington County State's Attorney Rory Tebow. Um, and then essentially um, it stemmed from John Halfant's, um actions or conduct when he was briefly a police chief in um, Berlin. And essentially when he stopped, there were two traffic stops that were kind of called into question um, and um, – Tebow found that he showed possible bias against the African-American drive, or the African-American passenger and Hispanic passenger in those cars that he stopped. Um, and so he did issue this Brady Giglio letter. Um, and so, yeah, that is kind of another piece of this that um, there, there already has been, um, you know, evidence that, that health has, has possibly showed bias um, based on race. Now, Helfant, you know, takes issue with Tebow's letter. He told me that he thinks there's multiple inaccuracies in the Brady Giglio letter. Um, Tebow stands by the letter. And, you know, he said to me, he just felt that with Helfant, there's no introspection in terms of kind of like, what could I have done better? Or, you know, how could, how could I, um, you know, maybe avoid these issues in the future, you know, that health ban kind of has been kind of defiant at every step. Uh, Allison, we like to take people behind the scenes as much as possible and explain to them how you do your work. What what was it like to interview health ban? You know, I wasn't sure that he would grant me a, you know, a phone interview, but I emailed him on a Friday saying, hey, would would love to chat with you about there had been a letter that had been sent to the um, select board and town manager signed by multiple groups and residents calling for his essentially firing and, you know, told him I'd I'd like to talk to him about that. And he said, okay, 8.30 a.m. on Monday. And so, you know, I prepared for the interview and we talked for about 35 minutes and, um, you know, it was a pretty civil conversation, and he also kind of sent me a long document defending himself. And, um, yeah, I mean, it was I, – I always feel like being able to talk to someone on the phone or face-to-face, you get so much more information, and they're able to ask them questions that you wouldn't necessarily get through, like, an email exchange. Is this a question – I know this is asking you to, to make a conclusion, which journalists hate to do, but – is this a is this a situation 
which now with social media is all too rampant, which is just adults behaving badly. Uh, it, it's really not a, a question of a law to be passed or somebody to be fired or not fired. It's really, can't you adults set a better example for children or am I overthinking it? I mean, you know, if if John Halifant is indeed a concerned parent, and that's why he's speaking out in Randolph, yeah. um, you know, someone I, I brought up, I, who I talked to about this, brought up the fact that, you know, if you're a concerned parent, there are different avenues you can use to express your concerns to a school district um, or a superintendent, you know, that don't involve standing up at school board meetings and voicing your opinions or writing letters that you then have published on, you know, Vermont Daily Chronicle. So I do think, you know, to me, there's a bit of a question as to like that defense that I'm, I'm only a concerned parent because I do think in choosing to kind of voice his opinion so publicly, you know, that is, that is a choice he is making. And I think, there's a question about why he's making that choice. Yeah, and the other question I think is, and you know what, John Helfand, if you're listening, two four four one seven seven seven, we'd love to talk to you. I will reach out and try to get him on the show. The should people in public office uh, behave differently than the average Joe or Josephine on the street? Should, you know, mm-hmm. should police chiefs uh, act like that in their private capacity? Uh, they may have the legal ability to do so, but, you know, it's kind of like watching your kids play soccer. For the most part, you should keep your mouth shut, but, uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll continue to follow this. Uh, I, I, what happens next, Allison, in this saga? Well, so Halfant said that, you know, he has no plans to leave until possibly May, because May is when he can, collect his retirement benefits. So there is a question of whether, you know, possibly he he will step down in, in May. He's been in law enforcement for over 30 years. And um, and so, you know, I'll, I'll be watching to see see what happens when, when that date comes. Um, but I think, you know, for now, I think there's certain people in the community that will continue to speak out and, and try to, you know, call for him to be removed and call for change. And we'll see if they get anywhere. Allison Novak, as always, you know, we, we have to stop having you on the show. I think that's three in a row. Uh, <laughs> we've, we've got to start talking to other seven days reporters, but as always, uh, great reporting. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah. Thank you so much for having okay. me. Okay. Allison Novak from seven days. Uh, boy, that's a tough one. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit more after the break. Um, civil liberties, first amendment rights, uh, throw in the LGBTQ massive change in our culture, throw in technology, throw in, uh, the, the, the hard job that school boards have to, have to deal in navigating this. Uh, the, you know, what, what can government officials say when they are, and act upon when they are off duty? We'll take uh, your calls, 244-1777, after the break. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on the Friendly Pioneer live radio at WDEV. 
In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis, your host, and we're going to stick with, we're, we're first of all, we're opening the phones. 244-1777. We'll try to get you all in. It's wild out there. Don't know if it's still raining, but the phones are lighting up. We're going to stick with this Northfield police chief story, John Helfant, who is in his personal life advocating uh, for his personal views against LGBTQ issues and the Black Lives Matter flag and Joe Biden and all sorts of other issues at School board meetings, while at the same time being the police chief of the Northfield of of the city of Northfield, or is it the town of Northfield? Do they have a select board, or do they have a city council? Well, maybe uh, Rama can uh, straighten me out on that. Rama from Williamstown, lay it out for us. So it's town of Northfield. Yeah, it's the town. That's right. I used to live there. And and regardless of the. Of whatever's in the press, it's a very nice town, also. Yeah. And I, as a Williamstown resident, I am extremely happy to be sharing a school district with them. Hey, and 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 a burger at the Good Measure Pub, uh, coffee shop, and brewery down there. Okay, well that's Northfield. I don't get over that hill very often. But, you know, it's a long walk. <laughs> hey, can, can I? You wanted to talk about the police chief in Northfield. I, I actually, can I real quick go back to your call with Bob Ney? Sure. And, and I'll be real fast and get out of it. Take, take your time because this is an opinion statement more than anything. You, you you were talking about the you and Bob both where you're discussing the reaction in particular I, you know at one point you mentioned president's reaction and specifically but not only him but uh and and the lack of trust in government and i couldn't help but think that if, you know this problem with these freight trains they're heavy loads the tri- type of freight they're carrying and the type of communities they run it through has been under active discussion at our federal government i would guess i could easily go back 40 years and document that. Okay, yeah. it's been there. So the reaction—I'll tell you—at this point, after this much negligence, this much giving into the railroad so that they can collect more profits, uh, it's the reactions. Of course, are going to suck because the disaster is going to be of such magnitude that there's not going to be any good reaction to be had. So and I'm hoping that folks will not be angry at the reaction, but be angry at the lack of proaction. In other words, doing something beforehand to make sure this doesn't happen, because everybody knows it's going to happen. It's happened. A whole town in Canada got leveled. Well, practically a whole town. Yep. Because of uh, tank, uh, oil tanks, cars. And, you know, the, the, we know this stuff's going to happen. So... They don't want to do anything proactively, and then everybody wants to look around for blame reactively. And by the way, I guarantee you, on this railroad bit, you will find Senator Biden just as guilty as anybody else. 
I'm right. letting the railroads have their way. Uh, so that's my opinion case about it. Well, Rama, thank you very much. Um, well, I'll tell you what else you can guarantee. In the next month, the New York Times will do a long uh, uh, story that will pull all of this apart, and I guarantee you that at the center of it is going to be uh, railroad uh, lobbyists for the railroads in Washington lobbying for uh, less safety uh, and the ability for these railroads to carry more hazardous uh, materials, and uh, that lobbying – that regulatory capture by large companies uh, is is going to is going to be at the center of that story, and uh, it's going to implicate Republican and Democratic administrations. Um, we leave this railroad safety stuff uh, to the back burner because it's kind of the railroads kind of just happen and function. Um, and that's that's going to be at the center of this story. Rama, thanks for the call. Um, let's take another call on this uh, from Fred. Fred and Newberry, how are you? Oh, pretty good, I guess. An old timer. Hey, you want to? What you want to do is uh, you ought to go to uh, YouTube and you ought to look up or type in First Amendment audit. Very okay. interesting. Here's why it's interesting. We know the Bill of Rights of the law of the land, right? Yep. Okay, so in other words, uh, uh, the Vermont uh, police, state police, can't have a can't have a a, a, a regulation that trumps the uh, First Amendment or the Bill of Rights, right? Okay. Okay. So, anyways, here's how it goes. You have these guys, these guys, these, they call them otters. They go in with cameras and they go into public places. The case in point was there was a police department. And uh, so the guy walks up to the back gate and the back gate is wide open. And there's the police department's parking lot. And there's no signs that say it's restricted. There's no signs, no cameras allowed or anything. So he goes in there and he starts taking pictures of the cars. And before you know it, the police come out. And they give him a hard time, and he says, "Well, you know, it's a perfectly legal thing I could do here." They know your police regulations say you can't do it, so they don't know the difference between freedom of the press and police regulation, right? Because you can do it, you can do it. So there's a big argument, and a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of them get really carried away on it. And, uh, well, then, well, uh, well, Fred, let me ask you this: Do you believe that the Northfield police chief? should be permitted to go to another town, I suspect he lives there, to the Randolph School Board and complain about the Black Lives Matter flag and critical race theory and LGBTQ policies in his off time? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, does he have the freedom of speech? Well, He's not a police officer. He's in his off time. He can't arrest me. He's not a police officer in his off time. He doesn't have his uniform, but he's not representing the police force. He can go in there and do that. There you go. That's his opinion. That's his opinion. I mean, you know, like, for instance, can I be, can I be uh, kicked off uh, uh, WDEV because of my opinion? They're not, if, if, if they're not causing trouble? Uh, and I think the answer to that is yes. 
No, it's not, because I had a big issue with uh, Steve Cormackey. We got a we got a big issue on the telephone. Yeah, but like um, eight, but, or nine, eight or nine years ago, it finally Steve said, "Fred, you only can call Monday and Friday." I said, "You're crazy." Well, but the thing is, uh, this is the this is the Twitter argument, Fred. Uh, and thank you for the call. The, the the this is the Twitter argument. Does does Elon Musk at Twitter have the right to throw people off Twitter? And I I think the answer is yes. Um, I, and I'm a free speech. I'm a free speech guy, uh, pretty absolutist. I'm pretty ACLU down the, down the, down the line. But I think private businesses have the ability to curate who comes on their program and what is discussed, whether it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, WDEV, whomever. Um, this is the Twitter argument. Does Twitter have the right to throw Trump off Twitter? And the answer is, yeah, they do. Uh, a private business has, it doesn't have to respect the free speech rights of, of any Tom, Dick and Harry. Now, if you're the town of Northfield, do you have the right to regulate the speech of your police chief when he is in his off hours? Uh, now question number two, is what I raised earlier is, and I would love to hear from people on this, 244-1777. We'll stay with this because this Northfield police chief issue spans all sorts of really interesting tensions in a democracy. Uh, the, there, there's also what I sort of call the common sense standard. And I, it, and as somebody, as a parent who has stood on a freezing cold sideline of Hundreds of soccer games in the freezing cold, watching uh, badly behaved parents uh, embarrass themselves, their children, and their schools. Uh, there is a standard here in which you, you, I feel like saying to the police chief in Northfield, um, you know, you may have a right to do something. That doesn't mean you should be doing something. Um, uh, just because you have the right to stand on the sideline of a soccer game and yell at the referees, that doesn't mean you should be. Um, uh, you know, it's it's just sort of bad behavior. Now, does, so does Hel- does Hellfant, the police chief in Northfield, have a right to go to the school board and complain about LGBTQ issues and Black Lives Matter? I think he does. Yeah, I think the I think the ACLU would probably say that he does. But the question is, should he? Uh, let's take another call on this issue from – actually, you know what? We'll take a break. Uh, sorry about that. Doug from Brookfield, hang on for just a couple of seconds. We're going to take a break and come back and keep talking about this. Uh, it's Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We're back. We're going to go straight to the phones. Doug from Brookfield, you're on the line. Yes, Kevin, thank you for taking my call. Sure. Uh, my understanding is that John uh, Helfand has children in the school system in uh, Randolph. Is that correct? I understood this from an article in the White River Valley Herald. I do not know that, but I would not be surprised. Okay. Now, he has every right to uh, express his opinion, whether he's a, you know, whether he's a private citizen uh, with children in the school or not. But my contention is more is with the school superintendent and the school officials, the principals and the uh, and the uh, teachers and the school boards. 
who seem to forget the taxpayers who support these schools. They, they seem to be interested more in the parents uh, who are, you know, who do or do not send their students to school there. And uh, I think these are the, the taxpayers have been given short shrift here when it comes to to uh, their, their viewpoints, their ideas. Huh. And John Helfant is, you know, he speaks for a lot of us. I don't know John personally, but I agree with uh, what his stances are as far as the transgender students and the black flag uh, flying it over the school with Randolph, and I just support him and everything that he wants to do there. Doug, thank you for the call. Yep. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. Joe from Northfield, you're on the line. How you doing? Hey, Joe. How's it going? Good. Um, I support John. Um. He has the right to say just as much as anybody else does. He is a citizen of this country. He has the right to free speech. Um, I'd like to flip this question around, though, if I could. Sure. Now, now, nobody with common sense would let a boy go into a girl's locker room and change with the girl, right? I mean, common sense would tell you that that was not a good idea, correct? Okay, keep going. Okay, so why why are we even arguing about this? This is this is not like well, I, I demand the right to do something. No, you you have we have if you're born a male, you're born a male. If you're born a female, you're born a female. You just because you identify as something. Doesn't make you whatever you identify. If, if I came to you and said I, I identify as a porcupine, and you looked at me, you, you wouldn't believe that, would you? I, no, because because looking at me tells me tells you that I'm not a porcupine. This is the same thing. This is the same. We're allowing certain specific small groups of individuals to demand. The rest of us lay down and say, okay, this is the way it's going to be. No, this is not how this works. The, the way this country was founded was the majority of the people get together and decide what is right and what is wrong. Correct? Right. Majority rules. This is a minority of people dictating to it the majority of how things will be. That in itself shouldn't be allowed. That in itself is very dangerous. When you have a minority of people dictating to the majority of the individuals what they will and will not do, there's something wrong with that picture, in my opinion, anyway. Maybe well. I'm wrong. <laughs> Well, no, it's a a good point. Thank you for the call, Joe. Uh, You must have been in a truck. That was loud background noise. Uh, But if you're still listening, uh, we'll we'll let you go and stay safe while you're driving. I'll respond. Um, Well, Joe, you're taking us back to the Constitution and the Federalist Papers, okay? Uh, Madison wrote about the tyranny of the majority and the rights of the minority. Um, we are a majority rules democratic republic. Uh, but here's the rub. 
minority pe- people who are the minority in this country have uh been discriminated against forever since the founding of the republic slavery the rights of women the rights of uh people who choose a different uh sexual orientation uh the irish the italians the spaniards that came to barry to mine the granite they suffered from massive discrimination and each of those groups uh fought for and uh, and is beginning to attain equality and equity under the law we allowed gays and lesbians to marry in vermont in 2009 that was a group that was discriminated against are they a minority yes did we change our laws yes so Joe, I, I, I'm, I'm grateful for the call because you're raising the fundamental issue in a democratic society that requires us to continue talking about this. I guess my point is, uh, if, if the police chief in North, I, I, I tend to agree with you that the police chief in Northfield has a right to express himself on whatever issue, uh, in his private, on his private time. No question. But the question is, should he? And that brings up what we are constantly talking about now in our democratic society is what we should and should be doing. So much of what former President Donald Trump did in our politics and still does is not about what what's legal and not legal. It's about what should and should not be said. You know, should he have said about the Charlottesville, uh, uh, white supremacists that there was good people on both sides? Um, and I, you know, it's, it's not just Trump. It's, it's everybody. It's Democrats, Republicans. It's everybody. Uh, it's not about what's legal to say. It's what about what you should say. And I would go back to the soccer game and I learned this the hard way. I, I had four kids. They all played sports and I stood on, hundreds of sidelines and sat in lots of uncomfortable wooden bleachers. And God, I wanted to yell and scream at the referee and the coach for being an idiot. Uh, but for the most part, although uh, there were lapses in judgment, for the most part, I kept my mouth shut because those are people out there trying to do a job. And the Randolph school board is out there trying to do a job. You may not like what they're doing, uh, but and and should you express yourself? Sure. Uh, but I, I there may be a different standard for public officials in a civil society that require them to do that to, to sometimes keep their mouth shut when you are the police chief. Now, if you're not the police chief, uh, I I suspect that. You know, you, you've got a, 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 a wider berth. But just imagine, Joe, as you're driving down the road here, just imagine if you're an LGBTQ kid or a gay kid or a, or a teenage boy, teenage girl, whatever, and you're driving down the road in Northfield and you're stopped by the police chief of Northfield who is expressing those views over at the Randolph School Board. How are you going to feel um being pulled over by him and can you trust him 
to carry out his obligations under the law. As always, it's a serious issue for serious people, and we try to take these things on on the show, uh, and we're seeking insight, as always. So thank you for all the calls. That's our show for today. You can email us at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. The live show becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time on wdevradio.com. Click on the podcast button and please like us and recommend us. You can find me at kevinkellis.com. Subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I'll be back Wednesday to continue our dissection of the Vermont Republican Party and all things Republican with uh, with the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute, uh, Myers Mervell. He's always an interesting guest. Had him on the show before. Um, our show is directed, produced, engineered, and managed by the master, Danny McGivergan. Myers Mervell is going to be a really interesting guest. Uh, he's the new president of the Ethan Allen Institute. And um, we're going to talk about where the Vermont Republican Party is going, where it should go. As he points out, he's not an apologist for Vermont Republicans. He's the new head of a think tank, which advocates for free market principles, freedom, and all sorts of other things which you can get on the following show. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you back here on The Friendly Pioneer, WDEV.